Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, good morning to you. Good morning, Andrew. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? You've just been on Australian radio, I believe. I think so, yes. Right. It's a show called Box to Box, uh, for any Aussies who happen to listen to it. I, um, I, I was sort of hoping that um, you know every time they put something to you, you would just say, I don't answer questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it would have been nice. Um, but <laughs> 15 no, I, minutes I, I, I tried to give them some answers. Okay, okay. I suppose that's what people are going to be looking for in this particular episode of the podcast yeah. as well. Some answers and some discussion of what happened uh, on Saturday at the Emirates. You had a good day, though. I did. I mean, I almost feel like I shouldn't talk about it because I feel like people are generally very upset about the game. The, yeah. So my, my good day, it may just annoy people. Okay, well, we won't we won't talk about it. Uh, other than to say, uh, your your son made his Emirates debut, probably one of the youngest ever. How mad did he go when he saw the starting lineup? Was he like fucking Arteta? Where's Gabriel? He honestly, if he could walk, he would have walked out. <laughs> <laughs> um, he made a dirty protest. <laughs> let's just say. In his nappy when he saw that starting eleven. Yeah. No. I mean, it, it, we did. We did have a lovely day. But I, I, when the eleven came out, I'm trying to think. I saw it quite close to kick off mm-hmm. uh, in full. And yes, still no Gabrielle. I feel mm. like every game, I Gabrielle doesn't play, and I say, "Oh, I'm worried about Gabrielle not playing." I think there's more to it. And a load of people tell me, "You're being oversensitive, James. He'll be back." It's just rotation. He'll be back in the next game. And yeah. he's not back in the next game. He's not. I mean, there's a you know going to be a lot of clamour for him to play definitely in the next game when we play Manchester United. And I've seen, you know, similar interactions about this. I mean, I can't help but be worried. And, you know, I hear talk of a system, a new system or whatever it is. And, you know, personally, I, I get the feeling that he is – not playing Gabriel for whatever reason. And the system, in inverted commas, is kind of a reaction to that because, you know, we don't have Timber. He wasn't ready to start Zinchenko, it seems, based on what he said after the game, that he's been out for four and a half months, so maybe he's not ready to start. Mm. And the party right back thing is kind of a reaction rather than an innovation because he's not picking Gabriel. Whereas you know, you could have made a very good case for a back four on Saturday, even if he didn't want to start Zinchenko, you could play Kivior at left back where he has played before. You've got Gabriel and Saliba, you've got Ben White, and I think the rest kind of slots into place. So, I mean, are your worries about Gabriel exacerbated by his absence from this game? 
Definitely. I mean, it's been put to me that once Zinchenko is back, Gabriel will be back. You know, a few fans have, have pointed out, um, you know, we will we'll play Gabriel when we play Zinchenko. And I think I accept that may be the case, but I still think Gabriel's not just there as Zinchenko's foil. He's there <clears throat> for a ton of other reasons. Yeah. And, you know, one being his partnership with him, Saliba, uh, I thought it was really interesting. And I thought Mikel Arteta was right when he said at the end of the game, we needed to be better in both boxes. But I don't know of a player in this Arsenal squad who can contribute more in both boxes, maybe, than Gabriel Magalhaes. Um, I think that's very fair. I, yeah, I, I, I don't get it. Uh, I don't think it makes sense. I, I I kind of understand what's happening with the back four in that, you know, Arteta sort of thinks of it as a three and a one and he thinks of it as three defenders and one guy who goes into midfield. And so at the moment, instead of Zinchenko playing, he's got Partey doing that and he thinks, well, I need, you know, three more centre-halfy type people. Mm. But I still think Gabriel could do one of those jobs very, very well. Um, yeah, yeah, I... I, I I don't think it's helpful. Mm. But but I think something I am going to say sort of early on in the pod, I sort of decided before I came on, I was okay. going to say it, is that I do think there are problems with selection. I do think there are problems with the system. But when you break it down, I do think Arsenal still sort of did enough in this game that eight times out of 10, they win it. I think ultimately their downfall was sort of, mistakes and sloppiness and I st I still think that although this 11 isn't the 11 I would have picked it was an 11 that was good enough to win the game absolutely I completely agree with that and I you know I've been not necessarily watching from afar but obviously you know writing the blog and, and seeing the comments and seeing a bit of my Twitter timeline um you know, there is a, a significant amount of anger out there over this result. And uh, personally speaking, my uh, if I can compartmentalize it, my anger slash frustration is with the, in, the individual errors rather than our overall performance, because I've seen us play a lot worse than that, a lot worse than that. And I think we had maybe chances, um, you know, to score more goals. Uh, I think that's a discussion point anyway. We'll, we'll talk about that. Um but it's not really about the overall performance, you know, having looked back at the game as well, having rewatched bits of it. I, mean, I thought the first half, there was a sort of sloppiness, a carelessness to us in that first half. And obviously that manifested itself very early on. But, but overall, I think we played better than I thought we did. And we certainly played pretty well in the, in the second half. But mm. the, the issue for me, again, I think aligned with you, if, if, I have some issues with the lineup if there if there are selection decisions that I would prefer to see and that's you know uh, the right back in particular I don't really see this as an overall performance to get really angry about but certainly those moments where we caused ourselves problems are are obviously very frustrating and those are things that I think we need to we need to focus on so yeah you know the, the the early goal that we conceded, the stat that's doing the rounds. I think it's three times in our last nine home games, we've conceded a goal inside sixty seconds. You know, fool me once, 
et cetera, et cetera, but three times is, you know, there's something else going on, right? We had a load of questions as to why we think this is happening. I, I Honestly, I can't say beyond some individual errors, but it is kind of remarkable that for all the preparation, all the organization, all the tactical uh, work that Mikel Arteta will do on the training ground, that we are susceptible at home in the early stages of games on a, on a consistent basis. There's something not quite right there. Yeah. I think three times you can't look at it anymore as an anomaly. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And there have been other moments. I remember I, I remember Aaron Ramsdale making saves early in games as well uh, because I remember sort of referencing, oh, and we conceded like that a few weeks ago. It, it's a trait in this team and one that absolutely has to be eliminated. You cannot, uh, you know, respond to the final whistle, but at fi- sorry, at the first whistle yeah. <laughs> by immediately shooting yourself in the foot time after time after time. Um why is this really hard to answer? I think that concentration might be a factor. I think maybe uh, an emphasis on attacking in the opening periods of games may lead to some of this vulnerability. You know, Arsenal for much of last season were a team who, you know, could be very dangerous in the opening minutes. And maybe uh, that's the balance isn't quite right there. You know, maybe we need to feel ourselves into games more rather than trying to start 100 miles an hour and leaving some vulnerabilities at the back. Um, and I think as well, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think if you're an away manager coming to the Emirates Stadium, the, the last thing you say before your team go out on the pitch is chase every lost cause in this opening 60 seconds yeah. because we know they're vulnerable at the start. I mean, what Don't- about... Sorry, yeah. Uh, I was just going to say that, you know, we've talked about system when we've talked about relationships developing in this team, right? Mm. I mean, is there something to the idea that when Bakayo Saka played that pass, he was expecting a centre half to be where a centre half should be? You <laughs> it's know, not an unreasonable expectation. I you mean- know, I'm not excusing the mistake or whatever, but I, it's just, it feels like one of those, okay, I know if I'm going to, you know, from all the practice we've done, from everything else, that there should be, and there should have been, a player in that position, you know? Uh, Thomas Partey moved upfield, so there was a lot of space for Pereira. And again, I'm not excusing uh, Saka's mistake. I- I'm just trying to look for an explanation. And I think he played it back thinking that that is where our right-sided centre-back would be at that point. Yeah, I've watched it a few times this morning and I think you are onto something there. That's why I think it's hard to separate the debate about selection and system from the discussion of errors yeah, because I think there is a relationship between those two things. And look, Saka makes a bad pass. There's no two ways about it. Shades of Martin Odegaard last season, you know, giving the ball away on the halfway line and immediately leaving us vulnerable. I think this was worse than that, in fact, because it's basically a through ball to the striker. Mm. But when you look at the picture around him, I think Ben White's looking for an overlap. I think Thomas Partey's in central midfield. There is a huge gulf of space uh, and unfortunately Saka plays his pass directly into it. Um, I think he got his goal from the spot, Saka, but I think there are a few moments in this game that he won't reflect uh, positively on. Yeah, uh, And this was certainly one. Uh, and then obviously you've got the situation with the goalkeepers outside of his box at that time. 
uh, as he's instructed to be, you imagine. Seconds hesitation, I think, maybe, about whether he should stay or go. And, yeah, I, I, I think he goes back because he thinks the striker's going to lob him. Yeah. And I think the striker is probably trying to lob him. That's what I think as well, yeah. Um but it, it doesn't look great, you know, the way it sort of bounces. It, in it doesn't, but I think he, I think it is a bit of a fluke of a finish, to be honest, because I think you're right. I think the way he shapes his body, he's trying to sort of curl it into that top right corner from his angle, and then I think he, he just sort of gets a good miss kick off, if you like, yeah. and that that run. And I don't think Ramsdale can Ramsdale. come. I don't think he can just charge out because there's two strikers there. So I think the ball would just be played past him essentially. Um, but, yeah, it's a terrible way to start a game. Uh, you know, I, I, we always say about conceding early goals, we get, we're getting into the habit of saying this, well, it gives you plenty of time <laughs> to come back. I mean, look at Manchester United, right, who mm. were 2-0 down in the opening stages and went on to win. It, it is retrievable. Um, funnily enough, we gifted Fulham a goal in this fixture last season as well. Gabrielle, uh, yeah. And that was Gabrielle. Yeah. Um, and I was actually looking at the stats from the two games this morning because I think Arteta in a post-match interview might have said, oh, if you look at those games, we were better today than we were then. They were very similar. They are, yeah. The possession, the shots, the shots on target, the XG even. You know, they, they, they are sort of similar shape of game. Yeah, I mean, that's why I'm not, you know, s- we'll come to it, you know, because he made some comments afterwards about goals and I want to ask you about that. But, but you know, when you look at it overall, you know, 19 shots, 11 shots on target, 72% possession, 90% pass success rate. You know, there are obviously things that we could do better in the game. Um, but, but I think, you know, when you, let me ask, let me ask you about this now because it's on my mind. So when you're at home and you score two goals, I think you have an expectation that this is a game that that you should win. Mm -hmm. And Miguel Arteta said something afterwards about, uh, let me see. Uh, It was something about scoring more often. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, I, I was just wondering what you thought about that comment. Let me, I'm sure I've got it here. Uh, bum, bum, bum. Yeah, we went 2-1 up. Then you have to defend the box with your life and you cannot concede that goal uh, that we've done because we should have scored 5, 6, 7, I don't know. And, I, you know, I get the idea that you want to score more goals. Of course you do. But I just wonder about the idea of a team which has not been secure with a two-goal lead at times, you know, planting that seed in their minds that they need to score more, is it is it like a motivation or does that become a bit of a, an anxiety if you're 2-0 up and you know the manager is talking about scoring five, six, seven goals and you don't get one? Do, you know, could that be counterproductive in a way? Maybe. I, I, I feel like it's almost deflection because for me, there is an issue. Arsenal should be converting more opportunities than they are. I think we've scored five goals in our opening three games. And when you look at the balance of play in those games, I think you'd want us to see, you want to see one or two more in the net, certainly for, from all the possession and ch- chances that we've had. Um, and Fulham will be a case in point. You know, we underperformed our expected goals on the day. Mm. Uh, and when you look at games that teams win four or five nil, it's very rare that their expected goals is four or five. If it's, you know, it's often yeah. in like sort of the three bracket, that's just the variance goes in your way. Um, but, 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 but Arsenal have to stop conceding goals 
at home. It, it, it is really, really problematic. And I think by talking about us not scoring enough, I think in a way it feels like deflection for the fact that we just concede way too many mm. at the Emirates Stadium to sustain a challenge for, for major honours. Um, I, I just don't think you can, I don't think you can do that. I think, I don't think you can keep shipping two goals at home time after time. As you say, if it's a game where you score twice at home, it's very reasonable to expect you might win that. Yeah. With this team, you can't expect that. no. It's a problem. I don't quite know how to explain the difference between home and away. I saw we had questions about it today, but again, it's one of those where it's very difficult to try and put your finger on on why it's happening, whether it's they feel a bit more pressure at home, um, there's more expectation at home. You know, it's not as if we're certainly in the last little while, not as if, you know, they're playing in front of a, you know, a very grumpy Emirates stadium and that manifests itself in, in sort of nervousness. You know, there's a lot of support in there, even when the, the Fulham goal went in the stadium and you can correct me if I'm wrong, sounded pretty loud to me uh, from where I was watching and, mm. and the response, you know, from the crowd was, was really good, but you're right. It is an issue and we've, uh, we've got to get on top of that. People will be screaming at their uh, devices or, or whatever now, talking about you know maybe a, a more traditional back four or more solid back four uh, might help you do that, of course. But um, I think the goals we conceded were more down to errors um, and whether those are a consequence of not playing the, the sort of back four that we might all like, I, I'm not I'm not 100% sure. What did you make of Arsenal's response? Uh, you know, it did feel like some of what happened in that opening minute set the tone because there were, apart from Ben White spraying some incredible passes and some really brilliant switches, there was a sort of carelessness on the ball. Trossard wasn't great up front. Saliba gave the ball away. Partey gave the ball away. Odegaard gave the ball away. Maybe Saka, there was another one where he didn't quite, you know, there was sort of a lack of precision in some of the passing, uh, particularly in that first half. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, even so, I thought there were opportunities. You know, there was, uh, I think of Saka, for example, at the back post after that cross came in, mm. um, sort of miscued his header. I thought that was a good chance. Um, Havertz had a moment in the box, didn't he? Martinelli had a couple of shots saved. I, I thought it was an okay response, but but nothing to compare with our second half. I thought second half, we were very good. First half, I don't know. We, we struggled, I think, for the mm. kind of fluency we'd hoped for. And, you know, Trossard was selected up top, of course. That was an aspect of the first limb we didn't talk about. But it didn't really happen for him. And the combination play that, you know, he's so good at, um, I don't think was coming off, really, to the no. degree that we would have liked. No, I mean, it was the sort of first-half performance that if, if Eddie had started and played like that, people would have been going absolutely crazy. True. You know, yeah. uh, as it was, I think... That was maybe Trossard's worst performance for us. And look, people were asking, when was he going to get minutes? He got his minutes, didn't make the most of his opportunity. And Mikel Arteta made a, a halftime change. I wasn't at all surprised to see that. Normally, he, he gives it a little while, doesn't he, um, before he makes changes. But I actually wasn't that surprised to see a, a halftime change. I wasn't quite sure what he was going to do, but in Kedia for Trossard, and I think we... We did improve in the second half. I think we were better in the second half. Definitely. I thought Eddie was really bright, actually. And, you know, Arteta spoke about 
when Eddie was dropped for the Community Shield, the response he showed in training. And I think here, you know, he was dropped from the starting 11 or rotated out of the starting 11. And he produced a great response in the second half, um, played with real intensity and determination and threat. You know, his movement was very, very good. Yeah. Um, and, and the subs made a difference. You know, we've we've maybe been critical of the manager for his starting selection or some of the tactical choices he's made. But in terms of his substitutions, I think he did very well. I mean, I, I wouldn't have foreseen as the storm was breaking overhead and the yeah. rain pouring down, I didn't anticipate this being the game where Fabio Vieira would kind of <clears throat> announce himself in the Premier League. But no, uh, it ought to have been really. I mean, I, if I feel for anyone uh, in the wake of this result, it's him because his contribution was enormous and it kind of is such a shame that it, it didn't earn the three points it warranted. It was, yeah, it was an interesting decision by by Arteta because there, there was that moment with Kai Havertz that I think people got very frustrated at where he received the ball and rather than take it and turn and drive towards goal, he just tried to lay it off to, to Declan Rice. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, I'm sort of reluctant to go too far into the weeds with the hazard discussion because we seem to be having it every week. And I still think he's a player who who needs time, uh, like most players when they join a new club. Uh, I, I think they do need a bit of time. But I said something to someone on Twitter about how I felt that that layoff from Havertz was a you know indicative of a player who's maybe a bit low in confidence. Mm. Uh, and some of the replies, it was like I was trying to make all kinds of excuses for him. I'm not looking for excuses. I think he should have done better in that moment. Of course he should. I think technically he's well capable of taking that ball turning and running towards goal or, or playing a more progressive pass because, you know, we've seen him do it even in the, the couple of games that we've had. But it was one of those almost like a lightning rod moment. And I think a couple of minutes later, Thomas Partey gave the ball away uh, quite carelessly and not for the first time in the game and the subs came on very quickly with Zinchenko on for um, Partey and, and Fabio Vieira on for for Kai Havertz. Um, I agree with you about Vieira. I thought he was excellent when he came on. Uh, consistency and, and finding that level consistently is going to be the challenge. But, you know, if Havertz is a guy who's maybe struggling to find his way and find his feet in this team at this moment in time. You know, Vieira is a guy who throughout preseason has sort of built himself up a little bit because, you know, I saw him miss a penalty against Manchester United in, in New Jersey. And he looked like a guy who had the weight of the world on his shoulders. He really did. You know, his reaction to missing that penalty in a basically meaningless friendly was so... Uh, acute, I couldn't help but be a little bit worried for him. But, you know, in the in the subsequent games, I think he scored a, a penalty against Barcelona. He scored the penalty, of course, in the Community Shield. You know, had a couple of good little cameos here and there and came on and, and was absolutely instrumental in us uh, getting ahead. Uh, won the penalty, really, really sharp movement with the penalty. Yeah, really sharp. And in this era of VAR, you know, almost every penalty decision you sort of look at and you think, oh, you know, ooh. it could be, ooh, is it going to be? That was about as clear cut as it gets yeah. these days. <laughs> <laughs> and the defender knew it as well. But listen, that was a really sharp, incisive, diagonal run. Um, I remember him making a very similar one at Molyneux 
last season to knock the ball across the box for Odegaard to score. He has that capacity. Uh, he looked very, very confident when he came on. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I liked it. I was surprised to see Bukayo Saka step up, I have to say. I thought it would be Martin Odegaard. But uh, fair play to Saka. He tucked that away. Uh, I thought it was one of his more convincing penalties. Yes. I mean, I think even if Leno had gone the right way, he wouldn't have got that because of of the precision of it. I mean, I was a little bit surprised as well. I was also a bit surprised that the referee came over and sort of made him put the ball back on the spot in exactly the same place. That did nothing for my nerves. No, me neither. Me neither, I have to say. Uh, But he, he put it away very well. And then, of course, the the Eddie and Kedia goal, Vieira with the ball across. It's quite funny when you look at um, the goal again, that Eddie is like straining to keep his run on side. I guess it's just, you know. <laughs> I know. It's years of force yeah, of habit. Yeah, exactly. Force of habit. And he sees the line of defenders and he's like bending his run to stay on side. The fact is, like he could have been three or four yards ahead of the defenders there because uh, Calvin Bassey was down injured. And, I, you know, it would have been fascinating to see what would have happened if Nketiah had been like a little bit ahead of that line of defenders. I think we could have been in for a, an all-time VAR howler there. Not that I have uh, little or no faith in, in the officials or anything, but it was one of those where people were going, ooh, is he onside? It's like, but there's two guys, there's two of them on the pitch. You know, it was quite funny. And listen, purely selfishly, I like that Arsenal went for the throat in that moment, you yeah. know, and uh, and said, look, we we need these points. We need to go for this. We can't be being too gentlemanly. I've got no issue with that. Um, obviously, I would have an issue if it was at the other end. Uh, but, you know. It's one of those, isn't it, where you, you want, uh, when it happens to your player, the opposition to sort of do the right thing there, chaps, and uh, put the ball out. But when um, when it's one of them, you just sort of, ah, oh, leave him, leave him. See, you know, get the doctors on later. Uh, but, you know, we did, and we did show a, a sort of measure of ruthlessness, if you want to call it that, to, to score the goal. Yeah, I, I, it's it's a brilliant goal, I think, our second goal, mm-hmm. in terms of the execution, the pass from Vieira, um, and the finish from Eddie is really good as well. Yes. Uh, and a beautifully, pointlessly timed run. Um, <laughs> it's also quite nice, if you <laughs> if you watch the replays back, Vieira's response to the ball hitting the net is amazing. So he, he fizzes in the cross from the left and uh, Eddie tucks it away. And instead of sort of, uh, you know, running off to celebrate or anything, Vieira just sort of turns elegantly to the to the Arsenal bench and the crowd, like like Cantona after he uh, lobbed the Sunderland goalkeeper or whatever it was. Just like a moment of like, yes, I have arrived. I am the king. Okay, I'm just uh, looking at it here. Yeah, it's... it's, it's <laughs> he revels in it, shall we say. Good for him. Good for him. Yeah. You know, the, he's, he's, I think, taken some time to settle in. He's had some difficult games. He's looked a little bit lightweight. He's looked a little off the pace at times. He's been given starts and he hasn't really made the most of them. So it's great, I think, to see um, you know him beginning, hopefully, to, to flourish a little bit because... You know, we've talked about needing a deep squad. He is clearly a player that Mikel Arteta has faith in. So mm. as and when he's given those moments, um, if he produces and look nearly 
um, nearly rescued us right at the death as well, if you remember, with a, a great shot that Leno made a very good save from. Mm. It was a really, really good cameo for him. And I think if there is, you know, a particular bright spot from Saturday's game, it's it's Fabio Vieira. Yeah, I think it was the the best performance we've seen from a player from him for a long time and from a player in that position I mean I think he, he has a shout at an argument to be in the conversation to start the next game based on what he contributed which has come from nowhere really mm. and it was a reminder that he does have talent I have heard him talked about by Arsenal fans many times incredibly dismissively and I understand that because he hasn't made a great impact but he has got loads of ability. He's mm. got loads of ability. And this was a timely reminder of that. And like I say, I'm just disappointed for him that uh, it wasn't to secure three points. Yes. So from there, and particularly when Fulham have gone down to 10 men, you know, this is a position at home that we should at the very least hold on to. However, you know, we were careless. Mm-hmm. Zinchenko was careless, giving the ball yep. away. Corner came in. We did not defend that corner well at all. You know, there were three guys. I think it was Jorginho, Eddie Nketiah, and Zinchenko who were in that sort of area where the ball skidded across. You know, that kind of front post area where... You know, you've got to get ahead on that ball. You cannot allow the ball to come into your box in that way. Three of them went for the ball. I don't know if they got in each other's way, but it was really bad defending. And then combination of of Saka and Declan Rice, maybe, um, not getting close enough to Zhao Palinha, who, by the way, is a fucking excellent player, isn't he? Um, Yeah. He yeah, he's, he's very good. Actually. He always impresses me every time I watch him. I don't watch a lot of Fulham, but he always impresses me when I when I see them. Um, you know, good finish. I don't think the keeper can really do a great deal about that either. Uh, it's it's down to that carelessness to give away a corner that we just did not need to concede. Yeah, I think that I think um, it was sloppy from Zinchenko. It was sort of unfortunately, you know, that is part of his makeup as a player. He has these moments. Um, and I think sloppy at the corner. You know, I, I, I do think Bukayo Saka will be very disappointed with the way Polina runs off him. I wonder if the red card, in a way, took the sharpness off of Arsenal. I wonder if they made the mistake of thinking we're home and dry when Fulham went down to 10 men. Just hmm. because it, it's so strange to earn yourself that lead and then not do everything within your power to protect it. Um, yeah. I don't know. It, 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 very disappointing though. And, you know, Fulham were obviously over the moon um, and there was just very little time. Well, I say there's very little time to win it, but both sides had their moments. Fabio Vieira, <laughs> you mentioned, producing a good save for Bird Leno and then uh, Adama Traore giving me a heart attack uh, practically in the last moment of stoppage time. Oh my goodness. That was, I mean... He's not a bad sub, actually, In the, when it gets stretched. Yeah. And William Saliba's quick, and he kept with him for a while. But, you know, we know about Troy Ray. He, he um, tried, the, tried the... I'm pretty sure Saliba was like, ah, I did this on... Uh, yeah. I did this on Saturday or last week against Palace. You know, I'll just slide in here and get the ball and everything will be hunky-dory. 
I was fully expecting Traore to go down, to be mm. honest. And I think if he had gone down, there's no question it would have been a penalty. And, you know, this is a game that perhaps you could have contrived to, to lose. As it was, he got a shot away. Ramsdale saved with his face, I think. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was, a, that was a bit of a let off. But, you know, there was still sort of 10, 12 minutes from the point where uh, Fulham scored with all the injury time. There was nine True. minutes of injury time. You know, there's still loads of time. I'm not sure we did quite as much as you might like in the final stages. We had lots of possession. I'm not sure the deliveries into the box were particularly good, and I'm not sure we necessarily had anyone in the box uh, in those final minutes to sort of sling crosses into, if that makes sense. Well, Gabriel Jesus came on, didn't he? I know, I know, but he's, what, five foot nine? You know, I'm not saying he's not good with his head. He is. He's obviously scored some headers. But, you know, I think maybe you need a little more... uh, a little more precision. I don't quite know. You know, try and force Fulham back and not quite do what we did against Bournemouth because you can't replicate that. But maybe some shots from outside, just outside the box, if you've got Fulham pinned back a bit, might have been a, a better way. Maybe Fulham defended, you know, well enough to prevent that. I did want I think, to ask you. Sorry, go on. I was just going to say, I, I thought we, in those final moments, the player I would most want on the pitch would be Martin Odegaard. And that's what he, I was going to ask you. Yeah, he was withdrawn on 84 minutes, obviously, once we had regained the lead. But when I think back to the late winners we got last season, mm-hmm. you know, the guy who's knocking on the door, who's turning the screws, finding the space when there appears to be none, time after time, was Martin Odegaard. Yeah. And I just felt in that final 10 minutes, we really, really missed him. Uh, and his ability. I think, you know, he's good enough that he can create something in those environments, in those in those. In that context. Oh, I agree. I agree. I was going to ask you, that's what I was going to ask you, was basically really? what what did you make of the decision to take off Odegaard when Fulham went down to 10 men? Because, yeah. it, you know, it, it, it's, it feels almost counterintuitive to me based on what Mikel Arteta has said at times about how he wants to control games, right? 300,000 passes, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm not saying Jorginho's a bad player. I think Jorginho was a great sub against Crystal Palace. I think it was the perfect player to put on at that moment in time because he's got the experience, the positioning, he's good on the ball, you know, as and when you do get the ball with 10 men, you know, he's he's calm and he can help you, et cetera, et cetera. But I didn't really understand the decision to take off a creative attacking player. If you're talking about wanting to score five, six, seven goals, why are you taking off Martin Odegaard or... At the very least, why are you replacing him with a deep-lying defensive midfielder rather than maybe putting on Emil Smith-Rowe, for example? You know, if you need, if you feel like Martin Odegaard needs to come off, and I'm not sure that he did, I don't think he looked particularly happy about it, I feel like that was a mistake. Well, as it transpired, certainly. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you could have brought... I understand bringing Jorginho on if you want control, Um but there are ways you could have kept Odegaard on the pitch. You know, you could have taken oh, Bukayo Sakharov, imagine. Um, you know, and, and swap things around a bit, put Vieira in one of the wide positions. There, there were other options. Mm. Um, and as it turned out, we really, really missed Odegaard in that final period. If anyone was going to somehow find a winner, I think it probably would have been him. Yeah, yeah, it didn't come. And obviously the frustration, you know, like I said at the start, for me, it's more about the the manner of the two points dropped than the two points dropped themselves. 
if that makes sense. Obviously, I I don't like throwing away a lead against 10 men, none of that. But, you know, these are, you know, it's not like Fulham pulled us apart where you have to say, well, we've got to hold our hands up. That was a brilliant passage of play from uh, from Fulham. It's self-inflicted. You know, the wound that we have um, picked up from this is, is completely self-inflicted because the the goals that Fulham got were, you know, we gave them two assists, basically. Yeah, I think so. And I think as well, um, because of last season and being in a title race with Man City, we just have entered a, a phase where every point is absolutely precious. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they showed us again the standard this weekend when they were pegged back uh, in the last 10 minutes against Sheffield United and then found a way to win it. Um, yeah. I think that's as well. It's not been a great weekend for us because, you know, United <laughs> went down 2-0, found a way to win. Liverpool went down, found a way to win. That was funny. Yeah. But it's also been a, I guess, a weekend that's illustrated, as you said to me yesterday by text message, you just text me saying football is mad. And uh, it is. And I think some quite mad things did happen in this game. And, and we have to sort of consider that in our analysis. Mm. Um I mean, how do you, um, how do you view, or you know, do you have an opinion on the mood, if you like? Because you know, you mentioned it, and the frustration appears to be quite palpable. How much of that is is just online versus, you know, how people are reacting in the stadium or around the stadium? You know, I know friends who have gone to the games uh, or gone to the game this weekend. You know, we're obviously frustrated and obviously uh, annoyed by by all this. But do you think there is a sort of not quite an overreaction, but are we perhaps looking at things with a, a fairly half-empty glass in that seven points from nine, it's not terrible by any means. You know, you, you'd prefer nine from nine, but I'm not sure people have been completely convinced by our performances. So when something like this happens, it's sort of confirmation bias in a way where you're going, well, something's not right. Something's not right. And then that happens. You're like, I told you, I knew it wasn't right. I mean, is there a need to not quite revert? Is this a, a, a moment that maybe Mikel Arteta will decide he's got to, in inverted commas, go back to basics? Or do you think he will look at the the games and look at, you know, because I, I, I really think the, the first game against Nottingham Forest, it only felt nervy because you know obviously we let the goal in we talked about the two uh, two goal lead but i think we controlled that game for 99% of it right mm-hmm. uh, and forest got a goal and it makes you f- feel a little bit differently about how that game went in in totality crystal palace i think we were in control until we went down to 10 men i thought we defended really well with 10 men um and then this game where you know, I think the overall performance was not as bad as some of the reaction I've seen, but the individual mistakes very obviously colour how you think about things. Yeah, I think people's frustration is kind of cumulative across the three games. I think a lot of what's going on in terms of the reaction is about a change in expectations. I think if you think of the last two seasons at Arsenal, which have been predominantly sort of feel-good seasons, we've over-exceeded what people 
expected by some distance. You know, I don't think anyone thought we were going to make a real push for Champions mm. qualification, and then we did. And I don't think anyone foresaw that we would be in the running for the title, and then we were. This year, the expectations are um, well. The the demand is kind of pretty close to perfection. Yeah, you know, we were nearly perfect last year, or for, for m- the majority of last season. And so the expectation is, well, we'll just uh, put the cherry on the cake this year. And the demand is you've got to get between 90 and 100 points and you've got to win the league. Um, And so anything less than that, I think, is going to get a bit more of a reaction. Personally, I, I don't think we can... I think it's too early to be talking about a title. I think Arsenal just need to look at themselves and just need to get this team working. The table doesn't even take shape, really, mm. in any meaningful way for a few months. I, I think that we can't be looking at others at this point. We can't be looking at what points of City picked up, what points of Liverpool picked up. Mm. We just need to focus on getting this team clicking and playing the way that we know it can and playing with confidence. Um, I think that's the sort of basics that we as a fan base need to go back to. And in terms of Mikel Arteta, I do have this feeling that maybe the last 20% of last season is sort of weighing heavier in his mind than the first 80%. Mm. The kind of he, he saw our bad end to the season and is reacting to that with change, with difference. But maybe if I was him, I'd go back and watch sort of August to March and be like, what worked rather than what didn't work. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because I think there are some obvious reasons why we're not fluent Mm. because we're missing some key partnerships, you know, Saliba and Gabrielle at the back. That was really, really solid. Ben White, and Bakayo Saka on the right, their relationship, you know, it was even evident in the the game on uh, Saturday. You know, once Ben White went out to right back, you know, the overlaps, the the contribution that he made, you know, we're missing Granit Xhaka, who, you know, whatever some people might think of him, was a very important player in this team and who I think crucially understood 100% what Mikel Arteta wanted from him in that position. And I don't think you can necessarily say that about Kai Havertz yet. Gabriel Jesus, you know, is not there either. And I think there are relationships that he has, particularly with Gabriel Martinelli, that are uh, really positive for us. So we're missing those aspects to our team. And I do. And we're missing Timber as well, which I, I don't yeah, think should be overlooked. No, I don't. I, I don't he, think so. He would have played all these games. I, I think so. I think so. But I'm just trying to think about what we have and how we might use it and how we might, you know, not get back to basics, but perhaps try and find some fluency. Um, I mean, there's you know an argument, I suppose, that you know you keep playing, you keep doing it, and you know those relationships will develop. But if they are coupled with the kind of mistakes that we saw uh, on, on Saturday and you end up dropping points, there's a lot less patience for that process, if you like. Yeah, that's it. That's it. It's a bit of both. And uh, Well, I, I think um, a looming fixture against Manchester United will 
uh, offer Mikel Arteta some clarity, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. a, a, a big game and a game we lost in preseason. I mm-hmm. know that may be sort of meaningless, but there'll be some learnings from that for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a game that would mean an enormous amount to fans. And so any frustration that is there, which I think is in part a consequence of the, the raised expectation, you know, a, a bad result against Manchester United um, will be in a whole other mm. world Yeah, uh, after that. Yeah, it might just sort of um, focus the thinking a little bit, if you like. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. And I, I, I know... I know what I would do and I would lean more heavily on the partnerships and the systems that the the players intuitively know and understand. And maybe the availability of Zinchenko is the catalyst to enable you to do that. Mm. We shall see. We shall see. We shall see. Okay. Um, I think we'll take a little break here. There are more talking points, obviously, but we'll cover some of those in the questions and more, which we'll do in part two right after this. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at Arsblog. Also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. Before we get into the questions, we did a competition on Friday to give you a chance to win a brilliant Bakayo Saka t-shirt from a store like 94, a store like 94.co.uk. And the random number generator has picked out Magnus Falkag. And Liam Thornhill. So well done to you, boys. I will be in touch by email. We'll get your details, get your sizes, and we will get those T-shirts sent out to you. If you would like to buy one, go to a store like 94, that's 94.co.uk, and you can use the code arsblog for 10% uh, off at checkout. And this is the last batch of these T-shirts that they're ever going to make. So if you want one, you better get on it straight away. Yeah, nice. Um, Before we get into questions... Kieran Tierney has joined Rail Sociedad on loan. We spoke a bit about Kieran on on Friday's show. Did you watch the video? No, I've not seen the video. Can I play you a little clip from the video? Of course. (laughs) Here he is. Is this a Sociedad video? Yeah, it was on the official Rail Sociedad website, and this is Kieran Tierney. Yeah, the Basque country is similar to Scotland. Exactly. I told you, Andrew. You did. I bow down. 
to your superior knowledge of geography and Scotland. Scottish culture. Scottish culture. All those summers in Edinburgh finally <laughs> pay off. Um, wow, there you go. The very, I mean, it's the San Sebastian of Britain. I've told you that many times. Uh, well, good luck to Kieran. Yeah. I hope he does really well there. He looked very happy to be joining. Why wouldn't you? Great stadium, great city, great food. Um it was quite funny as well because he, he he did his interview and he spoke in this really slow, deliberate way. I am so happy to be here. I am looking forward to playing that kind of thing, you know, mm. um, which I guess is how they're going to speak Spanish to him in the uh, days and, and weeks ahead. But I think it's a, I think it's a really good move for him. You know, uh, he's still a good player. I don't think he would have been you know, completely redundant at Arsenal, but he, you know, he wasn't going to get the minutes that he wants or needs. And he's going to, you know, play in a new country, new culture, play Champions League football. He's somebody who, you know, I think a lot of us uh, connected with when he joined first, you know, I think he became a real favorite with a lot of people and uh, there's a lot of goodwill towards him, always gave a hundred percent. So I, I really hope he does very well there. Yeah, I, I sort of had overlooked the Champions League football, but obviously that's a really big factor in the mm. move there. And I mean, it does mean we might see him again. Uh, you never know yeah. when these draws turn out. But, Quirk of fate. Um, I think you make a good point about the connection he had with the fans. You know, we take it for granted maybe a little bit now that we like all our players and <laughs> there is this brilliant uh, sort of reciprocal love between the squad and the supporters. But I actually think... Um, Tierney was maybe, he's in some ways, he was maybe the start of that. Yeah. You know, he was like the first guy who came in that really seemed to have like a connection with, uh, you know, the common fan. And I think it sort of began uh, that that sort of, I don't know, it was an early spark, I think, of the romance that would later build between sure. squad and but, fans. But I think what, what it also is, is that his style of play, if you like, was always committed yeah, And fans connect with that. You know, you can be the nicest guy in the world. You can say all the right things. But, you know, if if there's a perception maybe that you're not working hard or you're not giving everything every time you play, you know, people will get on your back quickly enough. And I think that after some of the players that we had to endure, I think is a word I'm going to use there, you know, Tierney came in and really gave it fucking everything. And people were like, yes. This is what we need. These are the kind so. of players we need. And I, I, you know, I think, you know, that's true now in the squad that Mikel Arteta has built in that, you know, that is a demand that he has for, for all his players as a matter of course. Whereas, you know, there was too much individualism, if that's the right word, or, or yeah, some players just going through the motions. Yeah, I, I think he sort of provided a bit of an antidote and he was, kind of, in terms of attitude and character, he was the prototype, really, for what Arteta would build the squad around. So, yeah, no surprise he's so well thought of and, uh, like I say, wish him all the best. Mm. Okay, let me ask you this question from uh, Helcarax on the Discord. He said, Goodly morning. I love Starboy as much as every gooner. 
But I think it's a little unfair, all the stick that Havertz is getting for that game when Bakayo gave the first goal away with a bad pass and also didn't cover his man for the equaliser. Havertz might not have been great, but he isn't why we drew. Do you think Bakayo needs competition to focus his mind a little more? Is he too much of an automatic starter with that string of consecutive games? Well, I, I think Saka had a bad game. You know, I'm pretty clear on that. Good penalty, bad game. And... Yeah, I would point to the, obviously the giveaway on the first goal, the marking on the second. I think that headed chance was <clears throat> much better than he made it look. Mm. Um, it was interesting. He did an interview with uh, Don McRae, didn't he, in uh, The Guardian? And mm-hmm. he was asked where he could improve. And I think one of the things he said straight off the bat was, I'm, I'm working on my heading. Um, <laughs> still work to be done there, it would seem. But listen, he's a brilliant player. Um, the competition point is a good one because competition now exists in almost every part of the squad, including an unusual degree of competition at goalkeeper, which I've got a question about later. But they, you can't really make the case that there is any real competition for Bukayo Saka. Is that just a consequence of his brilliance? I don't know. Mm. I don't know. I think. It, I, think, I think it might be to an extent... Yeah. In that it is very difficult to recruit in that position when you have somebody like Saka in your team. And and just to sort of touch on the, you know, I'm not comparing the Havertz um, and Saka performances, but but clearly Bukayo Saka is somebody with a lot of goodwill mm. in the tank. And that's, that's not the case with Havertz. He's got a huge uphill battle. He's got the opposite problem in some ways. He's where- got fucking salt in his tank unfortunately yeah, at the moment he's, but he's carrying some of the willian baggage you know i think that's true i think that uh, a lot of i think there's a, a fair bit of that you know i'm not i don't think you can necessarily compare the the deals really or the the strategic nature of the deals you might say but i think the willian transfer left a lot of people pretty scarred then again Jorginho's come in and he had some of that baggage too and and I think for the most part, he's managed to shed that. But of course, he's been here a bit longer and has, has had a bit more time. Yes. And I think the figures make a difference. I think the figures yeah. make a difference. Yeah. Um, and also what they are being brought in to do. You know, I think Jorginho, uh, we can all kind of shrug our shoulders and be like, yeah, okay, squad player, cover, makes sense. Um but when someone's being brought in to start and to replace someone who had become a kind of beloved Arsenal player in Granite Xhaka, uh, it's a very different context. Mm. Um, to, to Saka, back to Saka. Uh, listen, I think he had bad moments in this game, um, but he's still Bukayo Saka and com- that point of competition it's like how do you generate it who's Liverpool's competition for Mohamed Salah mm. you know I-, I don't think they've realistically got any um, even down the road at Spurs you know their wingers are Son and Kulusevski it's pretty clear um, yeah who is the competition for Harry Kane yeah you know there is a a, a point at which a player's quality and importance to the team makes that really difficult like you obviously want competition you want backup you want that environment in which a player feels maybe just a little bit pushed in order to keep their consistency and to you know to keep focused but 
I, I, I um, have some sympathy with, you know, if they've had difficulty recruiting in that position, I have sympathy for that because it is hard uh, to bring in a player of high quality to say, well, you're just going to be on the bench for most of the season behind Bakayo Saka. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I, and I still think the next best right winger in the squad after Bakayo Saka is probably Gabriel Jesus. Yeah. Um, and I'm still fascinated to see if now that he's back, we might see a little bit of that. We saw it a little tiny amount at the end of last season, just in rotations, him operating in those channels, operating on that flank. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think we should be open to that, especially with, you know, Eddie doing well up top and, uh, and, and Trossard is another potential option. Havertz is another potential option. I hope that we occasionally use Jesus to give Saka some respite here and there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've got a question from some guy called Clive Palmer. Um, Never heard of him. Okay. And he says, is there too much emotion around Arsenal on and off the pitch to enable the correct environment to sustain a title run? Hmm. Too much emotion. I mean, if there wasn't emotion, there would be indifference. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's positive. You touched on it a bit in in the first half where I think the level of expectation has changed. Mm -hmm. And I think that in turn has changed, if you want to say it's changed the mood, but it, it does change how you you think about games and how you how you deal with certain results or certain setbacks during the course of a season because of how damaging um, it is to drop points. I remember talking to Neil Atkinson from the Anfield Rap last season at one point, and I don't know if this went out on air in the, in the bit that we did for the podcast, but he was talking about that feeling of when you're competing against a team like Manchester City, every small thing that in isolation probably isn't the worst thing in the world. Like you're going to draw games during a season. That's part and parcel of football. You know, even our best title winning teams drew games at home, you know, during those seasons when we, we finished top. But now the, the demands are so high that drop points and the frustration you feel about those drop points is exacerbated to a huge degree because you, you're not expecting City to do the same thing because mostly they don't do it, you know? So I, I just think it's a, a consequence of all that, you know? I don't really think emotion is a bad thing, really. You want people to be invested. You want them to be excited and energized and, and all the rest of it. I mean, maybe there's maybe there's a if there is a perhaps a bad emotion, it might be tied to the way that we defend at home. I don't know if that's true or not, but I don't know. What do you think? Hmm. Well, something I spoke about a bit last season and, and uh, a subject on which uh, unusually I ended up a little bit aligned with Gary Neville, uh, which hasn't happened many times in my life, uh, was that I did worry sometimes about this being quite an emotional team and that consequently when setbacks come sometimes they can have 
greater reverberations, you know, and you mm. look at the sort of run of games where we dropped points last season and to a certain extent, you feel that may have, may have played out slightly. Um, I mean, I don't think emotion, for me, emotion is what makes football. Well, yeah. Football. And it's why I'm interested in it. Like I, I will, I may be unusual in this because I am, uh, I guess a romantic, but I would rather have, an emotional connection with a club that don't win the league than the kind of cold apathy of a Manchester City title win. I, that's genuine from me. Mm-hmm. I would rather care and feel invested and feel connected uh, than win and feel cold, you know? And that, that's just me. Would you would you feel cold if you were winning like Manchester City, though? Or would it just be fucking great? You know? I know what well, you're saying. I'd say... I'd say... Uh, it's to I'd do say, with the context yeah, of, of the ownership. Mean. But, you know, uh, if once you put that to one side, which most football fans do when it comes to... You know, I know, I know where you're coming from, but I'm pretty sure Manchester City fans kind of love it or maybe they don't i don't know i don't know <clears throat> maybe i'm not paying enough attention because it's not my team mm. but when i see them celebrate and when i see them celebrate a historic treble uh i don't feel that it means as much now i it's complete could be complete bias on my part but i just get the sense that mm. you know there is this sort of um, corporate sheen on it that sort of slightly takes the edge off. But I, I suppose what I'm saying is I don't know if I would wish that emotion away. Like the last two years being an Arsenal fan have been among my most favourite years of being an Arsenal fan ever. And emotion has been the critical factor in that. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I, you know, I wouldn't want to lose that. And it's been an extraordinary experience to follow the team and particularly to be in stadiums and be part of that. And I think there are clubs that are absolutely powered by emotion. I mean, Liverpool run on emotion, that club, I think. (laughs) You know, it's their fuel, it's their identity. Now, an interesting sort of caveat to that. When did Liverpool win the league? In the season where there weren't fans in stadiums in the emotion-drained COVID season Mm. is when Liverpool actually got over the line. So I do think it's really complex because I wouldn't want to take the emotion out of it, but I do think there may be uh, a tension between being emotional and being clinical and an opposition between those two things Mm. and and maybe a better balance to be struck for Arsenal um, as a fan base and as a team and as a club, you know, can we... City feel robotic in the way they win. And we are the antithesis of that, I think, a lot of the time. And something I said that I thought about the Palace game was like, in a way, it was more boring. But maybe that's what we need, you know? Mm. Um it's it's very complex, and I and I am conscious that you know you, what you say may be true. If you win, it feels emotional anyway. But uh, may, maybe maybe it's the type of emotion. Maybe it's like you say, 
anxiety or yeah, fear look, it's, or uncertainty. Like a season is a roller coaster, and you're going to go from highs, uh, you know, to lows and all the rest of it. So, you know, like you, it's it's. I think it's better to feel than to be completely indifferent or to be just sort of browbeaten or 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 in such a situation or state with your football club that you're like, oh fuck, you know. Um, I think there is something to channeling those emotions in a, in a positive way. Um, but I don't see it as necessarily a, a, a hindrance to what we're doing. I think there are more prosaic reasons as to why, you know, we didn't win the, win the league last season. I don't think it's because we over-celebrated against Bournemouth. I think it's because our, our squad wasn't deep enough and we didn't have the depth to cover, you know? So keep the emotions high at the moment they're a little bit tilted one way hopefully we can make them uh, positive when we face Manchester United on uh, on Sunday um, it's my question okay speaking of United Raphael Uribe who's at Raphael Uribe 123 says simple one today who starts at left eight against Manchester United if you're in the hot seat Declan Rice okay it's- is my answer. I've thought about this quite a lot. Um, I think Fabio Vieira deserves it, given what he did against... Who were they? Fulham. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think I would play a very familiar back four, Partey at the base midfield, Declan Rice to his left, Martin Odegaard to his right. Mm-hmm. That's exactly uh, what I would do as well. Yeah. I just think it's solid. It, there are some more tuned relationships there. I think Rice would be, he'd have a lot to learn. You know, it's not a straightforward role for him to step into. Um, but I think I think that's what I would do. And I think it, the time is right. I, like you, I, I've been worried about Kai Havertz since he signed. Not because I think he's a bad player, but just because as discussed, I think he's got all this baggage that he has to contend with. Um, and we are an emotional bunch, as discussed. <laughs> I mean, do you run the risk of... I mean, he's a big boy and he understands the game and all the rest of it, but how do you think Mikel Arteta might view... Um, like, if he if he's a bit low on confidence, does taking him out of the team, does that protect him? Does it damage him further? Or does it give him an opportunity to sort of, okay, let's see what happens against United. I mean, the ideal situation for for Kai Havertz, I guess, is, you know, given that we've both um, chosen a team without him in it, is that at some point in that game, he can come on and make a a valuable contribution, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of start to build that little bit of... of, um, momentum that I think he needs. Yeah, I mean, weirdly, I know what you mean. Like, does it risk diminishing his confidence or anything? Funnily enough, I think it's almost a protective thing. Mm. Like, I think this player is adapting. Um, He has been good in moments, less good in other moments. I I think it would be an exaggeration to say he's been bad consistently. I think he, he looks like a player learning a role. And part of learning that role can be stepping out and taking stock, um, even watching from the bench, Bench, you know, working on things in training. We are constantly being told this is a squad in which everyone's going to be rotated, everyone's going to play games, everyone's going to miss games. Mm. And I just feel that for this specific opponent, 
this is the time for him to sit down. Yeah. Uh, and I, and it, it could well be back in for the next game. You know, I just think we should, that's who I picked, Declan Rice in that position. Yep. Yep. Me too. Um, Do you think he will? I I have no idea, Andrew. I really have no idea. <laughs> it's hard to predict, isn't it? It is kind of hard yeah. to predict. It has been anyway this season. And I think it's, I think there's something quite interesting in the, you know, the embracing of the idea that we need to be more tactically, uh, have a bit more variety in terms of tactics or, or be a bit more unpredictable and people saying, yes, that's good. You need more than one way to play. There's, you know, more than one way to skin a cat, et cetera, et cetera. When it comes to Premier League football, that's, it's a really um, unfortunate turn of phrase that, isn't it? Yeah. Skinning cats. But my point is, you know, the, um, when it doesn't quite click straight away, there's a clamour to go back to what we all knew and were comfortable with. Absolutely, yeah. Peel a potato. That would be a much more it would be, nice yeah. phrase. More than one way to peel a potato. Is I think there, that's though? true. I mean, with a, with a peeler, with a, a knife, knife, you could use, you could use old a school. Sp- spoon, I suppose. It would take ages and you get... Your fingernails, if, if, if you're desperate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, let's let's use that one from now on. <laughs> uh, for for the cats everywhere, they've been through enough with Kurt Zuma and what have you. Um, yeah, we did have a question to that effect from Harren B, which I'll just sort of mention. Who said with Vieira seeming to take a step after step up after not playing much last season? Do you think Havertz may also need a season to settle in before becoming a regular starter? I mean, I don't know about a season. No, I don't think a season. Let's let's remember that. Last season was Fabio Vieira's first season in in the Premier League. He arrived with an injury, um, and, and he wasn't like uniformly bad last season or anything like it. He just was a little um, off the pace, you might say, in a couple of games where he didn't really produce what we hoped he might produce. But he still, I think I said this before, he had something like eight goal contributions throughout the season, two goals, six assists, something like that. So it wasn't like a complete bust. Whereas Havertz obviously has plenty of Premier League experience. I think part of why you drop £65 million on a player is that they are ready. They're Premier League ready. That doesn't mean that they're going to come in and absolutely... um, hit the ground running. I mean, I think Declan Rice has, to an extent... Uh, but I think maybe what Havertz is being asked to do, there's maybe a bit more learning for him in that sense. Maybe mm. he needs to just get lessons off Declan Rice because Declan Rice has learned so much in the last four or five weeks. He could get like extra tuition. Copy his homework. Yeah, copy, <laughs> copy his homework. Uh, well, listen, talking about team selection and the next game, uh, Arslan Hanani said, does Ramsdale start the next game? I don't see why he shouldn't, to be honest. I don't think he did anything particularly wrong in in the game. I know that first goal looked bad for him, but it's really more about the the bad pass uh, and the poor positioning from our defence uh, as anything else. Um, he did make a big save at the end. Uh, I thought he was good against Crystal Palace, particularly when we were down to 10 men. I think that, that presence he has... Um, was evident and, and really important. So I would I would start Ramsdale next game. Mm. I th- I think he will. Uh, I am sort of aware that it, I think it was three games in mm. that, that, that Burn Leno was switched out for uh, Aaron Ramsdale. 
couple of years ago. But mm. I, I think the problem you've got, the problem he's got now is that every time the ball goes in the net, people are going to ask this question. Yeah. Um, and as long as David Rye sat on that bench, he can't concede a goal. So it's tricky, but I, I think he will keep his place. I, I, I don't get the sense that Mikelata is in a hurry to make that change. Um, I think it would take a sort of a, a, a consistently poor run of form from Ramsdale for, for it to happen. Mm. But, you know, it's a conversation that will keep coming up uh, as long as we've both got both these goalies. And yeah. so I thought it was worth addressing on the show. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose every error or perceived error is more under the microscope now than than it has been, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, one thing to be aware of, I think, in discussion about our goalkeeper more generally is is that starting high position. You know, last season, Ramsdale was lobbed from the halfway line because basically, if we give possession away uh, on the, you know, in our defensive third, when we're high up the pitch, he is going to be out of his goal. Yeah. So it's all the more important we're secure in those situations because otherwise he or David Raya are going to be very isolated and stranded. Yeah. So giving it away on the halfway line when we've got, you know, nobody back is, I mean, you know, we, we've got to cut that out. Mm. Yes. A hundred percent. Here is what, oh, actually, we sort of touched on this, uh, but there's a, another question. Vodka Martinelli says, can you help me quantify why I feel like we would have gone on to win 3-1 if we brought on Smith Rowe for Odegaard rather than Jorginho? But Br uh, Brad Dennett says, should we sell Smith Rowe if we're never going to use him? Could use the funds. I honestly forgot we had him until I looked at our bench at halftime. Hmm. Well... We're all treating Fabio Vieira's performance as really good news. I guess the one person it wasn't good news for was uh, Emil Smith-Rowe, who, yeah, waits for his opportunity. I mean, at yeah, least he is on the bench. There are players not on the bench, you know. That's um, true. I suppose just a, a, a small thing on the Vieira introduction was that in pre-season, I think he played most... Predominantly on the right. Of yeah. the minutes on the right. And here he was chosen to uh, play on the left, which is... Smith-Rowe had got those minutes on the left yeah. in pre-season. Um, so that doesn't look great for Emil. Mm. I've kind of always thought that this would go the same way. I, I, I hesitate even to say this because I really like Emil Smith-Rowe and I think there's definitely a version of reality that plays out where he does find a role in this squad and does make a big contribution. Um, uh, if I had to say, I think he'll go next summer. <laughs> mm. Re regretfully, I, th I fear that's the way this will go, that he was kind of, you know, given this opportunity, they didn't want to sell him. They wanted to keep him for depth, but I fear that he's not going to get the chances that he wants to play enough football uh, unless there's a spate of injuries. Which they could be. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm reluctant to make any definitive comment on this three games into a season because it's still very, very early days. And we've it's seen... just three games, Andrew. It's just three games. Man once said. Don't know who that was. Um, but, you know, we're, we're, we're sitting here today extolling the virtues of Fabio Vieira after one performance. 
Absolutely. And it can be just that, that that sort of changes the mood or perception around a player that I think it's it's absolutely vital that when Smith Rowe does get chances, he makes the most of them because yeah. it, it can change um, and how people think of you as a player and maybe in, even how the coach thinks of you can change based on what you do on the pitch. So if he comes on in a game and plays well and makes a contribution, whether it's a goal or an assist, or, you know, if he gets a start and plays well, you know, we could be talking about uh, Emile Smith-Rowe in a, in a very different way because it doesn't take much to change, you know, uh, how people are thinking about you. But, you know, three games in, he hasn't really played. I think the context of the Palace game, you know, means you're leaning into the defensive side of your bench much more than the attacking side of your bench but I would have liked to have seen Smith Rowe for Odegaard I think I would have preferred that kind of change that even if you even if you do contrive to give a goal away against 10 man Fulham because you're attacking or whatever it might be you know I think I would prefer I prefer not to give the goal away obviously but I think I prefer the the sort of mindset where okay we're not happy at 2-1 we want to put this game to bed we want to score a third goal, maybe a fourth goal. I kind of like that uh, idea a bit more, you know? Yeah. I think Mikel has said that the players who aren't playing will get opportunities in the weeks to come. And I, I think it's very difficult for us to assess the use of the squad until the cup competitions begin. Mm. And we see, you know, what opportunities they're granted there. And, and proper rotation begins with Champions League and the midweek and Premier League at the weekend. I think once we get to kind of October time, we'll be in a position to talk, you know, more definitively mm-hmm. about about what opportunities players are getting. It's it's one game a week at the moment and, you know, there's only so many that get on the field. Yeah. Um we had a couple of questions about Mikel Arteta actually. So here's you know, here we go from Marty. At the start of Arteta's reign, I think I'm right in saying many of us felt he often overanalyzed things and made things more complicated than necessary, especially against other top teams. Do you think he's fallen back in this old habit, knowing that this season we might be a team to beat? And there was also a question from uh, James Gilhini, who's at JJ Gilhini on Twitter, who says, are we missing Steve Round, a sensible head in the room to stop Arteta indulging in his worst habits? Yeah, I had a similar question, actually, um, which was about, yeah, from AJ Sheepers asking about the coaching staff around Arteta and departure of Steve Round. Hard to know, isn't it? We're not in those rooms. Mm. So we don't know to what degree, uh, you know, those influences have sway on Mikel and his decision-making. Steve Round was obviously one of the more experienced people uh, in that group. And from the bits and pieces I've heard, someone who, you know, was prepared to disagree with Mikel at times. Um, that's why he's gone. And that's why he had to go. That's why he's been <laughs> assassinated. Um, nobody's seen him. Nobody's seen Where him. Where is Steve her. Rand? But, uh, so I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure about the overthinking thing. I know that it, it exists I kind of feel like if you win, you haven't overthought it. You're a tactical genius. And if you lose, you've overthought it. I think really what happened is we used to lose more games. Uh, and so we <laughs> used to say he's overthought it. I'm not sure he's changed that much um, in terms of his sort of overarching philosophy. And I think he views this season as different. I think he 
feels that the challenges Arsenal are going to face this year in terms of the way opposition will set up against them, in terms of balancing the Premier League and the Champions League, are different and require a different approach. Mm -hmm. I just think that um, you shouldn't throw the potato out with the bath, uh, with the with the dishwashing water, you know? Yeah. I, I was going to do baby out. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but you're obviously we, it's a sensitive subject. We're trying subject. to clean up some of these <laughs> idioms, you know? Yeah. Um, babies and cats and potatoes. We want to protect babies and cats where we can. Yeah, um, we do. But yeah, I, I do think that. I think okay. it's it's so it's so basic to say back to basics, but I think a, a dose of that this week uh, before the United game would genuinely have some value. Um, we had a question from Christine, who's at Hello Moto two three seven, who said, "Goodly morning, gents. Who's the wrestling fan that's working at the Emirates? The broadcast always manages to catch the tail end of themes uh, being played, which has been an absolute treat for me. I was especially moved by the tribute to Bray Wyatt. Am I pronouncing yes, that right? You are. Um, that well, is the answer. Is yeah, Peter, the, the, the the man on the uh, on the PA playing the tunes, Peter Majuzzi, who is." Um, yeah, exactly. He's on the decks. And uh, yeah, we did an interview with him on the podcast, actually, a few weeks back. So if you want to find out more about Peter, you can uh, go back and listen to that particular episode. So He sneaks in a lot of wrestling things, mm. just as the team are coming out for the second half, uh, one for the aficionados. You're a big and wrestling yeah, fan, yeah. Sad news, Bray Wyatt, uh, real name Wyndham Rotunda, was an incredibly creative guy, like had an amazing eye for sort of iconography and imbued everything he did with sort of like you know wrestling's fundamentally quite a sort of kitsch um yeah thing but he sort of genuinely i think brought like an artistry to it and heart attack at 36 really really sad too it's no young, age way, is it? way too young yeah i don't know much about the wrestling world but i you know i saw the reaction uh online um it obviously uh, confirms basically what you're saying about him so yeah, it touched a lot of people news. so yeah very sad news and a nice little tribute uh, from peter at halftime have you got one more good question I, do you know what i we've maybe done it but i had a lot of questions about just generally how are you feeling about united like brock strongo on the discourse said i know you do a preview podcast but he said how are you feeling about the united game from a fan base mood point of view it feels like a lot could be riding on the performance and the result I don't disagree. I don't disagree with that. But at this moment, as we're still trying to process the Fulham game, I'm not really feeling anything about the Manchester United game yet. But as the week progresses, and obviously we will talk about it later in the week and do a, a preview podcast. I mean, it's always a big game. It's always a big game. And I think this is one perhaps where, you know, either the worst fears are realized about our start to the season or... You know, we kick on and, um, you know, this is the, the spark that gets us going, you know. So from that perspective, I think it is, a you know, obviously a huge game. Mm. Um, what I would say is that they don't look like a team that can defend. Uh, you know, they conceded two in the first 10 minutes. I mean, I, you know, people in our glass houses um, shouldn't throw potatoes. But <laughs> uh, they conceded two in the first 10 minutes against Forest. They... Um, Lost at Spurs. They 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 haven't been mm. convincing at all. Um, and you know, if anyone saw their opening 
weekend game against Wolves. Wolves absolutely took them apart yeah. and were robbed of a penalty. Should have got something there. So they have vulnerabilities. It's not like we're coming up against United, who are resurgent and brilliant. Arsenal should be better than United. This is a game we should be able to win, I think. Um, and I'm hoping, as we said earlier, it just sort of sharpens minds. Um, yeah. Yeah, I know I know exactly what you're saying, you know, but, you know, Fulham at home against 10 men is a game that Arsenal should win. So I, I think I that agree. that's sort of, that is what what's um, at the back of people's minds is that, like, even if United can't really defend, we are capable of giving gifts to the opposition like fucking football Santa Claus. Um, <laughs> I, I, oh, I had another question, actually. Oh, yeah. Um, which I thought you would, uh, well, probably hate actually, but let's do it anyway. Uh, <laughs> Ian Sandwell on Twitter said, what's more likely to happen in the coming week? Uh, Partey not being used as right back against United or Gabriel leaving for Saudi Arabia? What's more likely to not happen? To, sorry, what's more likely to happen? So Partey playing in midfield... Or Gabriel leaving for Saudi Arabia? I would say Partey playing in midfield. Yeah, I, I don't think they can let Gabriel go. No, I think it would be crazy at this point. Unless the money was absolutely bananas and we were 155% sure um, that we were going to be able to bring in a quality replacement who could settle in and hit the ground running really, really quickly. You know, there's no way we can let that happen. Whatever's going on, they need to build a bridge and get the fuck over it. And, um, you know, it, it would be really surprising to me if, if he left. Yeah, me too. Famous last words. They'll be playing that clip <laughs> when he's paraded uh, in Saudi Arabia. Oh, my goodness. Um, I have one more here from Senior Grey Dog. Oh. Um, he said, after three games, which team has surprised you the most and which team has not met your expectations? In the Premier League? Mm-hmm. Um... That's a really good question. Which team has surprised me the most? Uh, West Ham, yeah. <laughs> I have to say. I thought they would really struggle. And there have been a lot of tensions there between a sporting director and their uh, manager about you know the direction of the team and mm. the club. Um, but they beat Chelsea, and to go and win away at Brighton is a terrific result. So they're riding high, second in the table. Um, who's not lived up to my expectations? I, I think I would say United. I, I, I thought they'd be better than they've been. I know they've won two of three. I thought they'd looked they'd look more convincing mm. a year into Ten Hag and with signings that he's made. I expected more from them early on. And they beat us in pre-season, of course. So, yeah, I'd say they've not quite... Um, mm lived up to expectations what about you i suppose not lived up to expectations is is newcastle to mm. an extent because you know they've lost two games i mean i fully oh, expected them to be complete wankers which you know i think they are and that's what made the liverpool results quite funny yeah. um 
And I actually didn't see the game. Oh, it was it was hilarious. It really? was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, you know because they, you know they were down to ten men. Possibly could have been nine men. Um, with the the Trent situation, you know. Oh yeah. I mean, quick thing on that. I said I, I don't always agree with Gary Neville. I watched him on Monday night saying Tommy Asu had to go, uh, basically for the two yellow cards against Palace, and then he said the referee probably got it right keeping Trent on the pitch for doing as far as I could tell exactly the same thing yeah I mean the the thing here is it's that Gary Neville's a little prick right and that explains that explains everything um I'm fully on board the completely hate Newcastle train now you know um yeah yeah I mean their assistant manager shushing Jurgen Klopp was you know dude sit down yeah he's a bit of a sit down buddy um, yeah. So it was quite, it was a bit of poetic justice in that regard. And, you know, Darwin Nunez, you know, when he had that first chance, there's sort of every uh, chance that it could have gone fucking over the stand and out of the stadium, given the way some of his finishing has been. But he had a look and he really finished it brilliantly in off the post. And then the the second one, Newcastle's defending down their left-hand side was, was not good. Um, maybe they need a left-back or needed a left-back. <laughs> bit late now, fuckers. Um, so that was quite funny. Um, who has exceeded expectations? It's sort of, I suppose, West Ham again, obviously because of the the game that they won against Brighton more than anything, um, which is another illustration of, of just how fucking crazy football is. When you look at the stats of that game, it's it's uh, it's mental. So my early takeaway about this league is, I think there are more bad teams this year. I agree. I yeah. think. Um, you know, when you look at the bottom, you've got Burnley, Luton and Everton in the relegation zone. My God, the only thing louder than the thunder at Emirates Stadium were the booze at Goodison Park. James, can you hang on one sec? There's somebody at my door right at the death. We're getting oh, doorbell wow. music at A the late death. call up for doorbell okay, music. Okay, one sec. back you're back i'm back good yeah but guess guess what it was tell me it's the man delivering a live on-air unwrapping of our third kit Ooh. Ooh, it's lovely it it's really nice great i like it so there we go thank you very much so you were saying bad teams oh bad teams yeah i think there's a few so you've got the bottom, I mean, the bottom six are Wolves, Bournemouth, Sheffield United, Burnley, Luton, Everton. Mm. I think a lot of clubs are going to beat up on those guys. I think season. so, yeah. Um, f- f- maybe you throw Forrest in there, maybe. But I, I actually think Forrest have been a bit unfortunate so far. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of points to be picked up. And I think... Uh, that's going to sort of slightly skew the league. I think it might become quite sort of polarised. Mm. We shall see. 
Okay, well, look, uh, we will talk more about the Premier League in the 30, the podcast that we do exclusively for our Patreon members. We'll have that for you a little bit later on this afternoon. We'll round up all the weekend's Premier League action as we do every week. For now, thank you, as always, for being here. Hope you enjoyed the show, and we will catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.